0: Is an Odyssey original.
1: This is KDEX in depth. I'm Rob Archer.
2: I'm Charles Feldman. Yet another indictment for President Trump, former President Trump. We'll go in depth into how damning this one is, but maybe more easy to defend against.
1: We'll also take a look at a potential breakthrough for one of the Hollywood strikes. And if you're sick, it might be something other than a cold or COVID. Well, that's piqued my interest right there. Uh, we'll explain.
2: We start with another historic indictment of former President Trump. John Dean is back with us. He was the White House counsel for President Nixon in the middle of the Watergate scandal. Also with us is political analyst David McEwen from Sonoma State University. Gentlemen, thank you both for being with us.
3: Pleasure. That's a pleasure
2: pleasure. Uh, John Dean, let me start uh, with you. I, I, as I'm sure you did, I read all the indictments, the one from New York uh, uh, State, the uh, the last federal indictment in Florida, which was the, uh, uh, the classified documents one and this most recent one. And while there's no question that the charges in this particular indictment are by far the most damning, might they also be, ironically, easier to defend than the other two,
4: I don't think so. I think what the special counsel has done, very wisely, is first he's avoided First Amendment legal issues. Uh, the way he's framed the uh, the indictment, he has apparently Trump is going to try to rely on uh, advice of counsel, a very difficult defense to employ. But yet, the principal witnesses against him in here are lawyers. So uh, I I don't think this is easy to to defend against. And I think it's it's simplicity, it's elegance, it's uh, very smart in the way it was developed and, and presented. It makes a tough case for Trump to defend.
1: Uh, David, John uh, just touched on that briefly, but the uh, defense uh, that's kind of being offered uh, now by the Trump campaign uh, seems to be uh, resorting to this. Uh, they're going after our candidates' free speech rights. He had the free speech right to say that uh, he didn't believe that uh, he lost the election, that that there was uh, vote rigging going on, that there was cheating, and that he's the real winner. Uh, it also, uh, they hinted at uh, that, you know, uh, uh, Donald Trump was was relying on the advice of some of his counsel but don't we see some inruns against that very those very things in the indictment itself because right early on one of the early paragraphs acknowledges that the defendant has a free speech right to say that the uh, even lie about the election to say that it was uh, stolen from him but also it lists uh, quite voluminously some of the advisors legal advisors and lawyers who informed Donald Trump that he had indeed lost the election
3: Yeah, I I think there's some validity to that. If you think about John's comments here just uh, just a moment ago, uh, Jeffrey Clark on January 3rd, according to the uh, indictment, talks about the Insurrection Act uh, and using that uh, that there is uh, Donald Trump himself putting his own language his personally inserting language into his one six speech. There's uh, the former vice president's extemporaneous notes, Mike Pence's notes. And then uh, on January sixth at seven p.m. in the indictment, it lists that uh, White House Counsel Pat Chibellini actually uh, urges the president uh, to withdraw his objections. That's before we get to any of the other ideas related to what's going on with the six co-conspirators who aren't mentioned uh, and, and what happens there. Uh, th- this is going to be a, a very difficult case uh, for the president to defend that he didn't knowingly uh, sell this lie to what was going on relative to the election. In addition to that, you have all these trials that are coming up. We're up to now 78 felony counts, three criminal indictments. We're gonna have seven trials that the president, the former president faces by the time of the traditional Labor Day kickoff here uh, in just about a month.
2: And yet, and yet uh, at least as of the last indictment in Florida, Mr. Trump's poll ratings among Republicans are, are not only good, they're getting better. So that leads me to this question for both of you. And John, if you take it first, and then David, you second. Uh, What's more important in this particular case, the legal trial or the political trial? Because it is a political one, too.
4: Well, it it is a political uh, event. But once you get in the courtroom, those politics fall away uh, when you start presenting evidence and Making your legal arguments. Yes, that but not. Out, not a,
2: but my point, John, is is not outside the courtroom, and and that's important too, isn't it?
4: Well, it won't. What's happening outside the courtroom uh, should not influence the jury, who may well be sequestered in this case. Uh, would not be surprised if that's the case at all. So they may not know even what's happening outside the courtroom. But trying this case uh, in the public uh, has been the strategy from the beginning. It's the reason he's running. I think that uh, no one doubts that, yes, he's he feels bruised by having lost last time, uh, but it wasn't until he realized he was going to be indicted uh, that he stepped forward very early. And his whole campaign is a really a, an effort to politicize his defense against these charges. David?
3: Well, there's a couple elements here. One is that They could have a televised trial. That's pretty unlikely uh, because the federal courts have resisted this. But that's one way uh, to deal with the problem of, of the court of public opinion. You also have a judge uh who who's an immigrant uh, uh a black woman uh the, the, someone who has uh a, a, as a stereotype has had the ire of Donald Trump whenever he's railed against federal judges uh she's also someone who has ruled heavily uh and handily against those found guilty relative to January 6th uh, in her past judgment. So, uh, if the jury does find the former president uh, guilty uh, of, of any of the charges, he's going to face a serious uh, uh, set of uh, prison time. It's going to uh, assault his personal liberty, uh, and that will be happening. It could be happening uh, well into the into the general election period. Uh, And this is not really, I think, unprecedented. Uh, We use that word all the time. This is an inflection moment, a change in American politics, perhaps something we haven't even seen since, say, like 1968. Uh, It is that moment that's happening uh, right before us right now.
2: I'm trying to think of if we no, and I'm just sort of thinking to myself, I don't think we've had a single guest on in the past few months who has said that it is uh, impossible for Mr. Trump to uh, be convicted of these federal charges and, and serve as the uh, president if people elect him, that there's nothing in the Constitution that would bar him from doing that. And in the past, it would have been ludicrous to even entertain this notion, but I guess it's not anymore. So let me start this section by asking uh, first you, David, uh, what happens if that happens? What happens if... Mr. Trump is uh, if the trial happens before uh, the election, but he gets elected anyway, even if he's convicted. And what happens if it happens after and he gets elected and either he or another Republican who wins the presidency, possibly pardons him? Then what from a political point of view?
3: Yeah, from from a political point of view, he can, you know, be inaugurated or he can, you know, run around after the election with an anklet on. Uh, It's hard to see that he serves in prison, he would be in, in some type of home confinement, but if he wins, uh, he'll have uh, any judgment vacated against him. Uh, this opens up a host of, of concerns uh, related to pardoning oneself. I, I think you have you know, one of the key experts in the world uh, on the program here about this, but, but there's also a number of other concerns, I think even before that, related to this trial on executive privilege, on the broader concern of privilege, particularly with the co-conspirators, what that looks like. So there's a whole run-up uh, that Donald Trump and his legal team will try to elongate moving to this trial so that anything happens, obviously, after the election. In terms of the political threshold, it means that uh, we're going to have not just unevenness, he has to win uh, the uh, the White House or the race for the White House to to preclude uh, any type of, of personal liberty uh, difficulty that he might have serving time in jail. So that places the stakes for him very high. And when the stakes are high, he acts in an erratic fashion. And I think so we should all uh, buckle up our seatbelts and get ready for that.
1: Uh, John Dean, uh, uh President Ford, uh, pardoned, uh, former president Nixon after he had resigned from office. Uh, there was a lot of outcry about that. And I'm, you know, better than I do. Uh, but things calmed down. Uh, If someone other than Trump wins and that person is a Republican and one of the Republicans who has already said, I'll pardon Trump on my first day in office, uh, and they pardon Trump, uh, will it calm down like it did for Richard Nixon?
4: Well, you've got to remember that Trump is subject to both federal and state cases. Uh, A president can pardon federal cases. He cannot pardon state cases. The Georgia case looms large for Trump. Uh, the DA in Fulton County uh, is about to uh, hand down what looks like it's going to be a very large RICO case. Uh, that has very severe penalties to it. And there is uh, the pardon situation in Georgia is a pardon panel. And it's, it's not really a partisan panel. So he's not likely to get a Georgia pardon if he's convicted in Georgia. Uh, so running running the government from a Georgia prison uh, doesn't sound terribly realistic to me.
2: John, we should point out when you say Rico, we're talking about a racketeering uh, case, right? Uh, yes. Um, so in, in that sense, though, do you think that if he were to be convicted, if he's indicted even, but presuming as all the cards seem to indicate, he will be in uh, the state of Georgia. If he indicted and he's convicted there, might that be the more dangerous of all the cases because he can't be pardoned?
4: That's what a lot of people are speculating, that Georgia is really the greatest threat to him. Uh, Fonnie Willis, the DA from Fulton County, is a very seasoned RICO prosecutor. She's got a case going right now, the RICO case. She successfully uh, prosecuted teachers who were fixing uh, testing scores under RICO, a very unique use of the Georgia statute, which has very broad language. Uh, It's now a fairly old statute. I actually know the guy who wrote the original one, a fellow by the name of Robert Blakey. Uh, It was a federal law and states adopted them to deal with mobs, but they have expanded the language that if you engage in a series of predicate criminal activities, uh, it will reach those activities as well and ups the stakes uh, considerably in the charges. So I think, yes, that is, uh, to cut to the chase, uh, the, the greatest threat he has in uh, a lasting case that he can't do anything about.
2: By the way, just a sort of historical note, uh, and I'm sure you're aware of this, uh, John, you David. I mean, in terms of a racketeering uh, trial, if that's what happens in Georgia, uh, the guy who as a U.S. attorney for the Southern District virtually pioneered the successful use of RICO against the mob was Rudy Giuliani.
4: That's right. <laughs>
1: Irony (laughs) abounds. (laughs) Our guest, John Dean, former uh, White House counsel for President Nixon, in the middle of Watergate, Sonoma State University political analyst David
2: McEwen. And still to come, another illness is spreading throughout California. We'll tell you what it is. And right now, though, back to the third indictment of former
1: President Trump. We're going to go to Iowa, where the Republican presidential race starts with a caucus in January. That's really close. Friend of the show, Pat Powers, is news director of KQWC Radio in Webster City. Thanks for joining us.
5: Well, thank you very much there, Rob and Charles. Great to talk with you this afternoon on kind of a cloudy day in, in north-central Iowa.
1: And we got sunshine here, but uh, hot temperatures. Uh, you know, you. I we, we've all been discussing that, yes, Donald Trump can continue to run, even if he's convicted. And uh, we're discussing the ramifications of him uh, serving if he's uh, convicted. And, you know, this hinges on the Constitution, which uh, I think Charles uh, pointed out uh, yesterday, that, you know, there's there's no... Nothing in the Constitution that would block a felon, a convicted felon, from serving as president. Do you think if we all get beyond this and uh, if, let's say, hypothetically, uh, Donald Trump is convicted, uh, Donald Trump does not win the nomination, does not become president, uh, things continue on after that, the Republican doesn't get into office and pardons him, do we see a push down the road to plug that hole in the Constitution and add an amendment that a convicted felon cannot serve as president of the United States?
5: That is a good question. Now, last Friday, we had 13 Republican candidates appearing in Des Moines on kind of a hot evening at the uh, at one of the hotels in Des Moines campaigning. Donald Trump was there, and already we have all these candidates going around. I think there's a lot of uh, question here in Iowa about uh, what came out of... Uh, the decision yesterday with uh, with Donald Trump about can he hold on? Good question on there. That's on the minds of many of the uh, Republican faithful here in the state of Iowa. And it's really surprising that there was not one single word from Iowa's GOP officials, like uh, Senator uh, Chuck Grassley, long-term Senator uh, Joni Ernst, another Republican, and from, uh, from Governor uh, Kim Reynolds, who recently uh, got kind of booted away from uh, Donald Trump.
2: I'm curious, Pat, because you have your uh, your sort of finger on the pulse, I think, of people in uh, uh, your state. Uh, you've been there for a long time. Um, mm-hmm. How is this all going down with them, do you think? How is this playing out, all these uh, – the legal woes of, of Donald Trump? Do they, for the most part, think that this is a, a serious legal issue, or do they think, as Donald Trump says – that this is part of a kind of democratic uh, uh, conspiracy to make sure he doesn't reclaim the White House.
5: I think that's your last point right there, because uh, there's a lot of Trump supporters here in the state. They want him to to run again, but he's being challenged by 12 other people. Of course, the answer will be forthcoming in a good 166 160. days. So I have a sneaky feeling that uh, there's a lot of uh, support for Donald Trump, but time will tell. Time will tell what's going to happen next. Uh, in this uh,
1: race, and Donald Trump's former running mate Mike Pence, who was vice president, uh, came right out and took the position uh, very solidly that uh, someone who has uh, put himself above the Constitution, and I think he's referencing uh, Donald Trump, without coming right out and saying it, uh, should never be president. Uh, if Mike Pence doesn't burst into flames and uh, continues on, <laughs> will you see more Republicans doing that? And how will that play with the Republican base?
5: I have a feeling that uh, it may be a three-way race come next year by this time. We may have uh, Mike Pence, uh, Ron DeSantis, and he's challenging Donald Trump, but they're they're not the best of friends right now uh, in this race for the White House here from from what I've been following in in recent days.
2: Could a and we're taking a leap here uh, and and again I, I underline obviously that that mr trump is is uh, innocent unless uh, proven guilty in a court of law right. but for the for the purposes of our hypothetical discussion uh, do you think that a convicted donald trump could win in idaho in, in idaho you
5: mean Iowa?
2: iowa sorry well, Or idaho, idaho <laughs> or idaho so, too yeah. The or in yeah in iowa
5: but who knows who yeah. knows it, time will tell on this. Time will tell uh, what's, what's going to happen next. But we have no idea on when the, the hearing is going to be uh, for that. It all depends on, on what happens. But, but for right now, from what I'm judging, uh, a lot of support for Trump in Iowa at this point with all the with some a rally that was held about a month ago with all these rallies uh, coming up between now and then, not only for Trump but for all these uh GOP hopefuls that traveling the state. We have the governor from North Dakota here in Webster City last week during our Hamilton County fair. Now we have Mr. Binkley coming to Webster City this week, uh drumming up support. So Again, time will tell for all these candidates uh, coming into the state in the
1: days to come. Our guest, Pat Powers, News Director of KQWC Radio in uh, Webster City, Iowa. And as always, uh, when talking about the indictment, we want to point out some facts. To keep in mind about uh, when when we speak of the indictment, an indictment is not a conviction. Uh, 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 Donald Trump is assumed innocent until proven guilty on these charges in the court. The indictment was not handed up by President Biden or the Department of Justice. It was handed up by a
2: grand jury made of American citizens. And Iowa is not Idaho. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) So there you go. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. We could be close to a breakthrough with the Hollywood writers' strength. The Writers
1: Guild set to talk more in negotiations on Friday with a group representing Hollywood Studios.
2: The studios actually reached out to the writers. With us now is Brent Lang, executive editor of Variety. Brent, thanks for being with us.
6: Thanks for having me.
2: So can one uh, infer from the fact that the uh, studios reached out to the guild that perhaps the studios are ready uh, to do something of, of a serious nature?
6: Well, it's the first positive sign that that may be the case. I mean, I don't think it's um accurate to say it's the beginning of the end, but maybe it's the end of the middle, and I do think at least at least this shows a willingness to discuss uh the differences with the writers because it's uh It's been they've been on strike since May, um, and it didn't really look like there had been any kind of engagement. Um, So I think people are feeling, you know, cautiously optimistic about this development.
1: You know, what's interesting is the uh, directors came to a quick uh, agreement there, although a little bit apples and oranges with uh, directors, but. But uh, there was talk that uh, the sag After negotiations for the anchors were, were going well, and uh, we were expecting there to be an agreement before a strike, and some of the writers were, had kind of told us that they, they were going to feel kind of left you know, hanging in the wind if, if if the actors and the directors came to a deal, but not the writers who are still out on strike. But that, as it turned out, we know the actors did go on strike, and now it looks like uh, there might be a, a something in the water uh, for writers. If writers do manage to get a deal, uh, get a deal that they want, uh, will the actors then be the ones who feel left hanging in the wind, or or is that good news for the actors' union and that maybe there's a there's a deal to be had?
6: Well, I suppose it, it depends on what the deal is, uh, and how much the studios how much ground those studios are willing to cede in their negotiations with the writers. Um, you know, I would think kind of conventional wisdom would would stand that if the studios are able to reach a deal with one of the unions, it puts more pressure on the other union. Um, and it is interesting that they have uh resumed talks with the writers because <laughs> conventional wisdom was kind of that um that they would actually resume talks with the actors before they'd go back to the writers. That that though there were differences and the two sides' proposals, uh, the studios were closer uh, uh, aligned with the actors than they were with the writers. So not quite sure why there was this shift in strategy, but um, you know, it, it, again, people at least seem relieved that that there's a possibility that talks could resume.
2: Well, I mean, do you think that the uh, the studios are thinking that since the writers have been out longer, uh, many months now, that they are likely to be more uh, apt to to settle?
6: I'm sure that that's gone into their calculus. Um I think it's so interesting because when we talk about the studios even, um the the group of studios is so diverse right now and their needs and interests and and the financial hit that they're taking are very different. So I'm not quite sure where the pressure to resume these talks, um, you know, originated from. But if you're something like Paramount Global or Disney, a company like that, uh, you're feeling a, a great deal more of a financial hit than an Apple or an Amazon, where making content is a very small part of your overall, um, you know, revenue pie.
1: Yeah, you, know, you touched on something that's interesting there because, with uh, in the world of the actors and the writers and the directors, one of the big concerns, other than uh, AI, uh, artificial intelligence, was streaming because the world change. Changed for actors and writers and creators because of streaming, but I think uh, it also kind of got lost that it also changed definitely for the studios and that their model is different now, and they're trying to figure out how to deal uh, with streaming and what that means to their bottom line. Do you think that could be part of uh, part of a willingness maybe to sit down and and kind of take another look at a possible deal? Uh,
6: absolutely. And when you're talking about this this new model, it's absolutely true that um just as streaming has uh proven to be less uh, financially successful for actors and writers it also appears so far to be less financially successful for studios um it's required them to amass a ton of debt while they launch these streaming services and uh to rack up you know hundreds of millions billions of dollars in losses uh as they try to build a subscriber base so I think on all sides, the uh, the financial reality of this new economic model um, has proven to be uh, pretty tough to to deal with.
1: All right. Brent Lang, executive editor of Variety, our guest on this segment. Thank you.
2: If you've been sick recently, but it wasn't COVID and you uh, think it was a cold, then it might have been. And it, you think it was cold, but it wasn't a cold. Right. Uh, or maybe an allergy, but it wasn't an allergy. You're kind of running out of options. But maybe it was or is Valley Fever. The state health officials say Valley Fever cases are increasing
1: in California. Here to explain what it is exactly is Dr. Dean Blumberg, pediatrician and infectious disease specialist at UC Davis Health. Thanks for joining us.
0: Yeah, good afternoon.
1: So in the roll up to your introduction, uh, introduction, I said you were going to explain exactly what is Valley Fever. So exactly what is Valley Fever?
0: You know, valley fever is a fungal infection, and it only occurs in a few parts of the world. But one of the places where it's really most common is Southern California, especially in in the valley, in the Central Valley.
2: And what does it actually do? And is it easy or difficult to treat?
0: You know, it it usually starts with pneumonia. And so people breathe in the spores, the fungal spores. And for most patients, they're asymptomatic. So they just clear it all by themselves. But for a little less than half the patients, they often get pneumonia. It can cause other manifestations too, including swollen glands. And sometimes it can cause infection of the bones or joints or even meningitis, which can be quite severe. Um, It's important for people to know about this because there are preventative measures that people can take. And for doctors, it's important for them to know about, too, because it's pretty easy to diagnose and there is effective antifungal treatment available.
1: So uh, is there a vaccine? Uh, And what are some of the preventative measures? You
0: know, there's no vaccine yet. There's been a lot of work related to vaccination, but nothing has come along. Um, We're not very close to getting anything approved for that. But we know how it's transmitted. Um, These spores grow in the soil. And when the soil gets disturbed, if there's wind, if there's dust or dirt in the air, people can breathe it in. And so if you're in an area where valley fever is transmitted, it's important to try to avoid that, to stay indoors if there's dust or dirt um, in the air, if it is windy. Um, or um, there's other measures people can take, such as um, wetting down soil if you're outside working um, in the ground or um, even wearing a mask. The N95 masks that people are familiar with um, work work very well also.
2: You were saying that it, it is typically found in places like the Central Valley, and yet it does seem to now be spreading outside that general area. Why?
0: Yeah, so um what we see with valley fever is the most common areas that it's reported in is the central valley including Kern and Kings County, but it's throughout southern California and with climate change the fungus is really um being reported from other areas um because some of these areas will support the growth in the soil.
1: How much of a factor is person-to-person spread?
0: You know, it's not spread person to person. So that's good news. So if you know somebody who has valley fever, you don't need to be afraid of them. They don't need to be isolated. Um, it's really only spread from the soil to people and not from person to person. Most
2: people, if they, you know, get up and they have a cough or some sniffles, they're not going to go running to their physician. So how does somebody know, short of running to their physician, that their cough and or whatever other symptoms uh, are manifested Uh, is not valley fever. How can you rule it out or can you?
0: Yeah. So for most people who have a community associated viral infection, I mean, that's that's going to last a few days, maybe up to 10 days. Um, But for um, valley fever, that lasts longer. That can last weeks, sometimes even months or years. So if somebody has a cough that's just not going away after a couple of weeks, if you have systemic symptoms such as tiredness, fever, um, even weight loss, those are the kind of things that a deeper dive should be taken to look for things like valley fever. And it is relatively easy to diagnose. There's a simple blood test that can be done. Chest X-rays can be performed to look for signs of pneumonia, and then if there is um, a concern for bone and joint infection, then imaging of these areas can be done as well. So, in addition to the antifungals, uh, what are
1: the treatments? Can someone do if they've got it? They've gone to the doctor. They've got the uh, other medication. Does like uh, cough syrup, things like that, to uh, help taking Tylenol for any of the fever.
0: Yeah, certainly supportive care is useful. People should maintain their hydration, have good nutrition, um, and and then, of course, take anything for comfort. So if fever is bothersome, taking antipyretics such as Tylenol, aspirin, or Motrin, um, that might make people more comfortable. So those are all options. Can Valley fever be fatal? Oh, yeah, it can be fatal. I mean, I've, I've seen patients who have died from it. And certainly patients can get meningitis, which may require um, neurosurgery sometimes. Um, and patients who have meningitis can, can suffer brain damage and have long-term effects. So it can be quite serious. So a good idea to
1: stay away from dirt on the ground.
0: Well, you know it it's hard right we're we all we're all exposed to that even our in our own backyards, but I think what's important to know, especially this year, is we do expect an increase it in cases because we've had several years of drought and then heavy rains this last winter, and that's going to result in um the spores really um proliferating, and so we've seen this before in California um with the end of a drought where we have a spike in the number of cases. So um, certainly taking measures if you're in an area and you're working outside, trying to avoid um, dust or dirt on the air when it's a windy day, and, and especially if you're working outside to take preventative measures such as wetting down soil before manipulating it, or or and and wearing a mask. Those are all useful. And even driving through these areas, you know, something as simple as that, you know, keep your car windows up because it has been reported by people just driving through um, uh, areas where, where this is endemic um, with the windows down.
1: All right. Thank you so much. That's Dr. Dean Blumberg, a pediatrician and infectious disease specialist at UC Davis Health. Uh, UC Davis Health. So we got to be on the lookout, Charles, for Valley Fever.
2: No, I'm just not yeah. leaving my house.
1: Just stay in the house because uh, we've got yeah. RSV to watch out for, yes. right? Yeah. We're coming into RSV season. COVID. Uh, COVID, surge, uh, COVID surge. Uh, COVID surge. Because now that's a cyclical thing. Right. We Flu's watch is coming for. up. Right. Flu. Flu will be
2: coming up. And right around the corner.
1: Yeah. I'm starting to think. Uh, I'm going to be with you. We're we're all just going to stay indoors and stay at home, and that's it. That's it for KNX In-Depth. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m.